The following is a conversation. It has the features of any conversation, such as imperfectly expressed thoughts, ill-considered opinions, and the notions of several sleep-deprived brains. Try not to get your stethoscope in a twist about it. Hey, you guys, uh, should I be thinking more about the Roman Empire? Oh my goodness. What? <laughs> this has been... Is there something about. wrong with me that I don't think about the Roman Empire? My, my wife asked me this question, and I hadn't been on TikTok in a couple of weeks, so I didn't understand the context. And I, was, I, was, I sat there for a second, I was like... Babe, I don't think about any empire. Like, that's just not <laughs> how not my a, mind works. I asked my boyfriend, he said he does not think about it unless he watches Gladiator. Well, and then I he says like 20 it. times a day. <laughs> I just watched Gladiator yeah. and it's been on my mind a little bit. Okay. I've been looking up Marcus Aurelius and Commodus. Okay. So, okay. I honestly think that just like my algorithm has just populated yeah. that for me. Okay. All right. Well, when yeah. prompted, I do have thoughts on somebody like Commodus, right? Like fighting giraffes in the arenas. Even back then, they were like, this is dumb. Not <laughs> I didn't know he did that. Yeah. And everybody in the audience was like, was killing this giraffes. is the least like aggressive animal. What are you doing? <laughs> They're like, this it's is like so an dumb. herbivore. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, all it's going to do is walk away from you. And he's like, I'm a man because I can fight a giraffe. They're like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> terrible, dude. So, this is why he was a bad emperor, because he, he just bad. wanted to be a cool guy swinging swords. He's like the he's like the Dave Etler of emperors. You know, like he just wants to do he just wants to make people eat weird things for the podcast yeah he's like he's got he's got his hobbies and they're like rule the empire and he's like or <laughs> just do my hobbies meandering in the margins of medicine it's the short coat podcast weird news fresh views helpful clues and interviews by students for students subscribe to our weekly show at the Welcome back to the Short Code Podcast. It's the show that gives you an inside look at medical school from the students drinking from that fire hose. It's a production of the University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine. I'm Dave Etler. With me today in the SCP studio, he's gained international fame as a professional apologizer for YouTube celebrities. It's M2, Jeff Goddard. God, that's so true. <laughs> Her freestyle vacuuming skills are sought after by such celebrities as Eric Estrada and John Goslin. It's M1 Fallon Jung. Hi. Uh, he rose to fame as the world's quietest yodeler. It's M2, Eric Vallon. Hello. And she's no doubt about to join their famous ranks, making her debut on this podcast. It's the newish director of our Writing and Humanities program and my colleague, Katie Prisky. Hello. Uh, Eric, Katie, welcome to the show. Thank you. Eric, I always like to get to know you all a little better. Your first time on the show. Okay. Tell me a little bit about yourself, where you were before you arrived at CECOM and and why medicine? So I was in Idaho before CECOM. I was raised in Montana and then I moved to Idaho right before high school. I wanted to do medicine because in college I just kind of started to graduate towards the sciences. Mm -hmm. I was undecided until I decided. And basically I just got a bunch of experience. I shadowed a bunch of different things, dentistry, nursing, and then shadowed a bunch of doctors. And it just seemed really cool. You just kind of a lifelong learner it's super cheesy but i like learning i don't like dwelling on something for too long and so it just kind of fit and in my opinion this is also cheesy but health is the most important thing that a person has and being able to navigate that with people and help people in the most important you know thing in this life is just kind of an honor so that's why i wanted to do it great it's a great answer it's like i it's like i warned you that we were going to did I warn you? I don't know. I no, don't think I didn't so. warn you. 
I got no warning about anything. Yeah, Katie got invited on the show like 15 minutes ago, and and she's being a good sport. Katie, I told you that you didn't have to prepare anything, and you really don't. I'm counting on it. But tell us about you. What do you want to know? I want to know something similar. Why, Why? What did you do before you came here, and why are you here now? Good question. So I... Um, grew up in Iowa and I have been back in Iowa City for about five years prior to coming over to the College of Medicine. I have been working on my PhD in the College of Education, also at the University of Iowa. And I knew the pre or I know the previous director, Kate, and saw this job was open and talked to her about it. And here I am. And how do you feel about the, that decision so far? How do you feel about working with me, Dave Eller? feel pretty good about it. So far, so good, I would say. Wouldn't you? <laughs> Absolutely, I would. But, you know, you never know what other people think of you. It's true. Thank you for it. And you can, you can definitely count on her to give you, like, total honesty, considering right. her, her office is 10 feet from yours. A- and on a podcast that people listen to. Yeah, yeah. for sure. <laughs> well, again, thank you, for, thank you for agreeing to join us. Yes, of course. Thanks for having me. So, I guess... There is always a national physician shortage, but I don't know, like for some reason it got some attention from NBC News this week. They did a whole piece on it, a whole minute and 36 seconds or something. And I thought we could talk about this, this shortage because, you know, I'm not really sure I understand why there is always a physician shortage. So... But I, I have, I kind of have thoughts about it, but I'm not sure that they're correct. What do you, you know, Jeff, you wanted to talk about this too. What? I'm just going to myth bust real quick. There has not always been a physician shortage, even by the people that are pushing that there is a physician shortage. Okay, right? okay. Um, uh, within the last few decades, the AMA specifically said like, we're on track to have too many physicians. That was a concern, I think in the eighties. Mm. And that was part of like the tightening the belt of applications to medical school. Which makes sense when we're talking about the AMA, whose job it is to secure the financial success of their members who are physicians. Sure. Fewer doctors, more money. Exactly. Yeah. That was my myth bust. I'll let anybody else jump in. So what you're saying is we don't have a physician shortage? I'm not saying that. I'm saying that the idea that we have, quote unquote, always had a physician shortage is not true. We have gone through cycles of people thinking that we have too many. We have gone through people thinking we have not enough. Yeah. So the and so what is this most recent idea about this physician shortage? Like where is this coming from now? I feel like I've heard it my whole life. I yeah. feel like there's like there's just as long as I've been around, approximately twenty seven years. Yeah. Well, I mean, I was looking at some statistics. Ninety nine point one percent of positions uh, were filled in the twenty twenty three match. Um, it's about one percent that didn't. Yeah, I mean, well, yeah, about one percent that didn't, and. So you would think, okay, well, that is some measure of the idea that there might be a shortage of physicians. If there were, you know, say more positions that weren't filled, you might go, okay, we have enough physicians in the workforce. That would be somewhat bad news for medical students, but, you know, for the profession as a whole. The problem with the field of medicine, specifically physicians, is that it is a very manipulated market. That's not inherently a bad thing, but there are several steps in the process to getting to a physician where somebody gets to decide how tight that bottleneck is going to be, which means because somebody is trying to decide that, it's not the market. 
and it kind of makes it a little bit harder to judge what the actual number of doctors should be, right? So how many residency spots are we going to have is largely determined by how much hospitals want to spend, which is zero, and how much uh, the federal government is going to spend on those trainings, which is going to be limited because they don't want to spend more money than they have to, right? Which makes sense. That's how everybody spends money. So how are we deciding how many residents are being trained every year? It's always going to be a conversation. Same with how many medical students are being taught in medical school, right? These, those are the manufactured markets or even into it to a real extent, how many people are getting into college, but those are manufactured bottlenecks that limit how many physicians are entering the workforce. And then when you get to actual people going out and being able to practice, you're, you're kind of dealing with this delay of um, supply that you can't really reasonably predict. Yeah. So yeah, I've heard similar things as far as what I know, you probably know more than I, Jeff, but it's all about the residency positions that you're creating basically. And the government pays for those residency positions. So they, you know, they only have to dole out so many positions per year and they don't really add to those new, like they don't create new residency positions as far as what I know, or they haven't in a long time. I think they have recently, but it's definitely not kept up with the need. I mean, America's population is aging, you know, so that's right. a big factor. Sure. Yeah, I have an interesting story. I was talking to a urologist. They're historically like a pretty, quote unquote, burnt out specialty in today's day and age. They work a lot. They have a lot of variability in their practice. Their call is pretty brutal. It's because they got their residency positions bottlenecked like in the 80s or 90s. I was talking to a urologist about this. And because he had, I think, 15 people match in urology his year in school. And so they bottlenecked the residencies. And now because of that, because so many people were going in in the 80s and 90s, now they're super that there's just not enough of them. Yeah. And he's sort of or she is sort of looking at retirement at yeah. this point, as are a lot of physicians. And so that's going to create its own its own special contribution to this problem. Kitty, were you going to say something? Yeah, I was thinking about this, not from the physician perspective, but from the patient perspective and someone that grew up in a rural town in Iowa where there used to be a hospital there. There's no longer um, a hospital. There are no doctors at all in my hometown. You have to drive at least 20 minutes, I think, to see a doctor and to get to an actual hospital, I don't know, 45 minutes. And so thinking about like the way that rural healthcare plays into this conversation, especially in Iowa, and where physician openings at, where physicians moving, where their positions. Yeah, you see, that's one of the one of the big conversations. Is you have organizations like the WMC, AMC. They are essentially the body that decides medical schools, right? They have a stake in this because they want more people to go to medical school because that means that they're getting more money, right? They want more people applying to residency so cynical, because Jeff. so cynical. Well, it's, it's their business model, right? It's not necessarily that it's completely disaligned with society. Of course, we also want doctors, yeah, right? Yeah, so, yeah. but we should be aware of their incentives, right? The same with the them applying to residency because the AAMC gets money for people applying to residencies, right? The AMA has an incentive to try to up the value of their members so that their pay can be commiserate to what they think it should be, right? I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with either of those incentives as long as we are aware of them, right? Yeah. The problem isn't at so much a physician shortage as it is an allocation issue, yeah. right? Saying that we're going to train 
say 10% more doctors doesn't guarantee that any of those, that 10% of doctors are going to end up in small Mm -hmm. towns in Iowa. Yeah. That's an incentive issue that has to be addressed completely separate of supply. Yeah. Maybe, you know, one of the things I thought of, and I think is probably just absolutely absurd is maybe the match should also take into account geographical need or distribution as well as the need of the students and, or the, you know, the applicants in the programs. So, Hey, there's a Nobel prize in there somewhere again for the next person who develops this match algorithm. (laughs) In a very real sense, that's what it was intended to do, right? Because before it was, you were applying to residencies as a student, you were just kind of whatever in residency programs were basically trying to hire like second year medical students, right? Because they were trying to get ahead of the curve, Mm. you know? Um, but that was the issue was this allocation problem is that you would have hospitals that had tons of people and then you had a hospitals that didn't have anybody at all. And then you had communities that were suffering because of it. And large part, the match came from a desire to make sure that the scarce resource that is a societal benefit is more equitably distributed. Uh, that not that it solved it perfectly, but it's a heck ton better than the wild west that it was before. Um, does it need to be revisited? Sure. Maybe. I'm, yeah, I'm these okay things always that. need to be revisited and we never revisit them. Right. Well, we don't revisit them until it's the too, problem is yeah. super acute. Maybe yeah. now's the time, guys. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. On the plus side, if you're a resident, you're if you're a senior resident, you're super good. Forbes reported last week that the majority of residents, 56%, are receiving 100 or more job solicitation offers during training. The highest number since 1991 when the AMN Healthcare Physician Solutions company first started surveying final year residents. So that's up from 30% getting more than 100 solicitations in 2021. So Um, big jump. Yeah. And and a a fun, just a fun history lesson for those that are less aware. In the 90s, when we talked about the physician shortage, it was getting more kids into medical school. We we don't talk about it that way as much now. We're well, talking we're about opening getting, medical schools. That's why all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's dozens a, of schools have opened in yeah. the last twenty years, which is you know historically speaking, this is like one of our biggest increases in the number of schools. The question it's, of sorry, the question of how well those schools are regulated, or if we need to revisit a, a Flexner report, is probably a conversation for somebody else, but. Well, and also it does nothing to address the thing that you already discussed, which is the the limited number of residency slots that are available. It you just can, moved the bottleneck. Right. Yeah. Which is why we're talking now about can we increase uh, residency spots? I personally was in Washington, D.C. this spring with the AMA to discuss increasing residency spots on some of the legislation that they were you know, going through the, that was going through the House. And I have met with lawmakers specifically for the specialty that I'm interested in. Obviously I'm a little biased, but I think that I think there'll be a spot for me, but I think honestly that that particular specialty needs more focus and increase in funding for residency spots. So I've done that advocacy work as well, but physical medicine. No, sorry. Uh, preventive medicine, preventive medicine. Yeah. Is your choice. Yeah. Preventive medicine is it's like, So it is not primary care in and of itself, but like primary care, we can demonstrate that when people of that specialty are in a community, the um, improvement of health of the community increases significantly more than most subspecialties, right? So if you have a cardiologist in community, he can, he or she can, can make a significant impact on the community, hopefully for the better, right? But he's not going to have the impact that the primary care physician is going to have 
because the primary care physician targets everything and everybody, right? It's prevention versus like disaster control. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, but people don't make money off of prevention, except for maybe you who's going to prevention. And yeah. that's probably part of a problem as to why people don't want to push that right yeah. further yeah. up the chain. Yeah. Um, obviously, it's what people want for public health, but not necessarily yeah. for the, you know. Admittedly, preventive medicine is one of the lowest paid specialties, specifically because there isn't a lot of procedure involved and we have a right. fee for service system. Yep. So, but there was that, that bill pushed through the house or being pushed through the house that's focused more on compensating better on value based care. So, more on keeping patients healthy as opposed to how many procedures can you do. That's a step in the right direction, but that's not fixing this problem of whether or not we have doctors and, and rural medicine, right? So, out of curiosity, is there a pre- is there such thing as like a preventive preventative medicine doctor or is it somebody who is in primary care that has a specialty for in, lack of a better word yeah fellowship. yeah yeah so preventive medicine so there are two words preventive and preventative they both mean the same thing doesn't matter but the specialty itself is called preventive medicine oh, okay one fewer syllables and it is an actual like board certified specialty has existed since the 60s but it's very small because it's not reimbursed through medicare so its residencies aren't trained using Medicare funding because, like children, the p- populations that they are serving aren't predominantly Medicare patients. And so mm-hmm. Medicare doesn't pay for children's hospitals. Medicare doesn't pay for preventive medicine training. Fortunately, we really like kids, so we find other funding for that. But that's in large part why pediatricians make significantly less than other physicians. They're not paid through Medicare, gotcha. um, which is a national program. They're paid generally through Medicaid, which is a state program. And so their reimbursement rates are lower. Same with preventive medicine. Their reimbursement rates are lower because they're not doing procedures and they're definitely not doing Medicare procedures. And Medicare funding is the primary way of funding residency slots. Yes. As well. Yeah. Um, Interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. I mean, the real solution is finding a way to make sure that we are incentivizing people to go into primary care and incentivizing people to go to places that were needed. The video that Dave's talking about, this the NBC one, they talked about this primary care doctor in this tiny little town in Alabama, I think, and she's going to retire, but she can't retire because there's not another doctor there, right? Mm-hmm. And so people are like, but if we change more doctors, we could solve this if there were more doctors. And she specifically says in the video, like, there have been other doctors. They've left. Yeah, they're like, <laughs> yeah, okay, see ya. It's, it's not the fact that there is, isn't a large enough pool to pull from it's that nobody wants to live there and practice medicine for other reasons yeah much as i enjoy your piggly wiggly i'm out yeah, yeah. Piggly wiggly there's not piggly wigglies in iowa dave uh, might be in alabama i don't know yeah. <laughs> wisconsin Florida. I, yeah, yeah in wisconsin i do love a piggly wiggly but i honestly have no idea what a even it's is. a grocery, grocery store. store oh okay. i thought yeah. you were actually talking about pigs i was like isn't iowa known for pigs like <laughs> isn't this Jeff, why Jeff. aren't there Big piggly pig wigglies get on this piggly wiggly <laughs> corporation of america whatever they're called. <laughs> please sponsor us yeah <laughs> short coats we love to hear from you no matter what it's about. So call us at 347-SHORT-CT with questions, shower thoughts, complaints about your situation, whatever you like. We'll talk about it on the show. There are some smaller programs that do incentivize people to go into primary care. So, for example, like I'm thinking of the National Health Corps Scholarship, which basically takes people and says, hey, we will pay for all of your medical school. We'll give you a stipend, but you have to go into primary care after you're done and you you have to 
do service in a high need area, which we will decide what that need is for how many every years we decide. So usually it's four full time or eight half time. And there have been other solutions proposed. There was one and one of these Midwestern states. I'm so sorry for people that are from here. I don't remember them all. Where people that didn't match were able to go train under a a primary care physician for a year and then essentially practice medicine in a a reduced capacity, but in a primary care capacity, right? I like that as an option. As an option. Like, I'm not saying it has to be the end all be all. Like, yeah, you don't have to, you know, push people into that when they don't. I think it's. uh, I think a full third of medical schools in the country have some kind of accelerated program specifically for those that are trying to go into primary care. So a lot of schools. You can do three years of medical school if you're going into primary care. Yeah. Because, I mean, you don't really need all of that other stuff if you're That's sure this nice. is what you're going to do. Yeah. You and know, so there's like this huge incentive to do it, right? The other thing that I think about is that there are medical schools. So, like, for example, NYU is one of those schools that said, hey, we have a physician shortage. We specifically need more primary care doctors. And so they took away tuition so that they could get more people to come into medical school in the first place and kind of stop people from having that financial barrier of getting in. Which is a big problem, right? We've talked about it on the show many times. You know, the, the more you end up, the more you spend on medical school, the more you're going to want to, the more money you're going to want to make when you're done. Exactly. And so you're not going to go into primary care as readily Right. For that reason. Yeah. And I understand that this is a political football that people are going to kick down the road until, like you said, it becomes so acute that we can't do anything but solve it. But purely from a fiscal perspective, which, as we've talked about, I'm a little too analytical and too concerned about numbers. It makes so much more sense to say we will pay for medical school as a society. We're going to pay for medical school for anybody that can get in and finish. Um, but you will not be compensated over the course of your career as much. And I think evening out the specialties is more reasonable. Yeah. Or because patients aren't really very sympathetic to the concept of a doctor saying, I should be compensated more. Yeah, Bro, you've got yeah. two boats. Yeah. And you're talking to somebody who's on food stamps. They're not on your side on this issue. Yeah. They're not going to be. It's hard to, yeah. Yeah. It's hard to be sympathetic yeah. to that point of view. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm not saying that physicians shouldn't be fairly compensated. I'm going into this specialty. I would like to be able to feed my child, right? But at the same time, like recognizing that there has to be some kind of limit and it makes much more sense to say we're going to have that limit, but also you're not going to have this $400,000 worth of debt, yeah. you know, and I, that, that makes it a little bit easier to suggest, hey, why wouldn't you go into primary care? You have the same amount of debt as somebody who isn't going into primary care. Now it's a lot more financially. Yeah, feasible. now you can make a decision on whether to go into one specialty or another based on your interests also, yeah. Yeah. rather than some pressure that your pocketbook feels. Yeah, um, right. Yeah. But the other big change that would have to be made, and, and I apologize to anybody who's having to listen to me. I've read book and book and book and book on this subject because this is my whole life. We have to move to a value-based system. We have to move away from fee-for-service medicine because it's really tempting to say i'm just gonna do that five thousand dollar procedure day in and day out and mm-hmm. make my eight hundred thousand yeah. dollars it doesn't really matter that i didn't have debt that still looks kind of nice yeah. well yeah and i mean what you're suggesting is also a move away from ca- i mean we live in a capitalist society so yeah. you're incentivized yeah to do things for more money yeah. yeah and so if you if everything you are paid, is fee for service right yeah, yeah. not whole, not just medicine yeah. yeah but there are forms of medicine so if you guys don't know about chin med it's it's one of my favorite examples it's not the only one but chin med is they're in like 13 different states at this point but they started out in florida and all of their patients were elderly patients i think they've specialized in geriatric medicine 
and they take a monthly payment for each of their payments, for each of their patients, and they just take care of them. And some patients are in there every single day because that's what they need. And some patients are, you know, they come in is a, this a few a, times a month. Is this a, a company? Is this, what is this? Yeah. So it's a private, it was started as a private practice. This and concierge medicine is that's the, kind of what yeah, it sounds, that's like. What it it sounds yeah. like concierge medicine, but they specifically target geriatric and poor oh. patients all on Medicare. Okay. That's all they do. And they do it in such a way that there is not fee for service. Capitated payment is essentially taking care of the, like you get an amount and you benefit more financially if you do if they are healthier, because that means sure. you have to do fewer procedures, right? Sure. Um, it's not the only model. There are certainly other forms of either concierge or, or other medicines that work in this model that are specifically targeting um, populations that need healthcare more than others, right? Like poor patients, older patients. But um, to, to ask the entire system to move to that is uh, it's kind of hard to do, you know? Um, I get why doctors in New York, for example, my, my family's in New York, Doctors would stop doing private practice for Medicaid patients and start doing concierge service for people on the Upper East Side. You start making, you know, $2,000 every patient visit. Yeah, I can see why you would want to switch It's hard to, to ignore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, financial incentive mm-hmm. is there. Yeah. For places like ChenMed, I would assume that they don't take insurance. Is that correct? So they work with they the, every state that they're in. They've partnered with either the Medicare or the Medicaid to mm-hmm. figure out how they're going to get insured the patients themselves aren't paying for it gotcha yeah oh, that's it's really usually the local governments that are paying for it hmm. and it's a model that you, at first you're like eh, it doesn't seem like it would work but then they keep expanding you know and I, I use them as an example because they're the largest one that i know of but they're not the only organization that does stuff like that there's another one in scottsdale arizona that i am just besotted with they are uh, a clinic that they have dietitians on staff they have personal trainers on staff they have like pool tables and like a community center and so the whole point of the clinic is to make sure that you are overall healthy and the doctors who run it are one of the people that the patient sees the, the least because they just don't need their specialty they need a dietitian they need somebody who's going to go grocery shopping with them and help them pick out good healthy food with their budget you know that's awesome that's so cool and they didn't start it out to make money but it is profitable yeah. right like it, it's self-sustaining they don't need outside funding in order to keep going so these models you're right it, it is shifting away from mm-hmm. our, our fee-for-service capitalist uh, approach to medicine but i mean i mean let's be honest hospitals started the uh, the whole concept of hospitals started to take care of poor people like sure, we, did, a lot we of- didn't have any other way to take care of them so we're gonna put them all in one room and we're gonna as a society raise some funds and take care of poor people and now it's become what do business? you think that was the reason that, so my understanding of that is really it was to keep sick people or poor sick people away from the general population. So, I mean, there's, these are two different concepts, right? There's, so there's definitely the idea of asylum, which is a factor, right? But it's also just the idea of indigent hospitals have been a concept in America and in Europe for, I don't know, since the concept of modern medicine really for the last several hundred years and And maybe we call them now community hospitals yeah uh, a lot of the time like i I, my general sense of those kinds of of community hospitals is that they serve you know the community that they're in but also that they're usually in areas where you know there might not be a big university hospital or or something like that but it's it's typically you go to rich people and you get their money because they feel like they need to get back. And so they do in the form of here is a hospital, right? Or the doctors that are working in that, they're not trying to keep people away from the rest of society. They're trying to take care of these people. One of my favorite examples is in New York is now owned by Presby- um, New York Presbyterian, but it used to be uh, 
the hospital that the black sisters opened up the doctor's black it was just poor women and children and that's what they took care of Mm. and they also use it as a training hospital for the first women physicians in the country and now we've very much shifted to a model of hospitals are a business that have to be self-sustaining and are not charity based and that for better or worse yeah and that might be owned by investors that yeah want you to make money and keep making more money and grow yeah. yeah. Growth is such a weird concept for me in business. Like, like what, how strange is it that you always need to be growing? Always grow. Why can't you just keep doing something good? Because you're money? not making more money. Yeah. Everyone wants more money. Make more money. Yeah, there, I mean, there are absolutely some people that are happy with where their business has grown to and stay there, but that is absolutely not the majority. That would be right. me. Yeah. I would be like, if I had a business that made enough money to to you know keep me and my family alive i'd be totally cool with that but i'm not an ambitious man (laughs) but the thing is that a company isn't a person right a company is yeah is an organism made up of many individuals and there's a lot of pressure from uh, all sides on that but that said i'm not trying to say that business getting into medicine has been wholly bad like there have been some really good things that have come from it sure i mean i assume that a lot of advances have come because you know somebody saw that they could make a profit if they only knew x y or z and Mm -hmm. so they studied that and they came up with you know yeah eli whitney was able to mass produce insulin you know these two guys Mm -hmm. in a lab in toronto were like okay we can take it we can isolate it from they use dogs to treat our patients with diabetes and then they spent a whole year to get this insulin to treat a patient for 30 minutes because they just didn't have enough, right? And there was no way to mass produce it. Eli Whitney comes in, they give them the patent for a dollar, right, to the university, and then Eli Whitney gets in, and they mass produce insulin, and it kept patients alive. And it's an incredibly arduous process. I mean, you can understand amylase is also made in the pancreas. Amylase will eat the insulin. So turns out it's very difficult to isolate just the insulin from a pancreas. So, but I can understand that, but a business got involved and a business has saved patients' lives because of it, right? And it's not the only case in medicine that this has happened. Business is, has a, an enormous power to do good in the world and in healthcare, but it can't be the only thing. If we're only chasing dollars, then it, it gets awkward. And if dollars become a priority over taking care of the patients, it also becomes a bit of a problem, right? And, and that's my fundamental disagreement with organizations like the AMA. Like I'm a member of the AMA. I'm happy to go advocate with them on issues that are involving patient rights or keeping uh, physicians healthy and safe, right? Keeping our communities in a way that works for us. And I've, and I have advocated several times with them, but then every now and again, they'll push an issue. And I'm like, this feels more like you were concerned with doctors continuing to be a privileged class in society, as opposed to what's going to be best for the patients, what's going to be best for the system. And I understand that everybody has to advocate for themselves because nobody else will. But at the same time, like we're doing okay. You know, I don't know if we need an extra slice of this pie. I always joke that I'll be the first to sign up for a brain implant that helps me remember things. I, I almost everything I've ever read or the things that my wife tells me are important. I can't remember them. (laughs) I'm sorry, world. I can't remember what you want me to remember. But for now, I think I'm going to pass on Elon Musk's Neuralink. Did he come out with that? So it's ready for human trials, Okay. Neuralink says. Okay. Have they done animal testing? Yes, they have. And that is the problem that I'm about to highlight. Public records and interviews depict a sort of a grim picture of Neuralink's animal testing um, results, including complications like 
partial paralysis and brain swelling in monkeys and things like that. Now, sure. uh, you know, so Elon is like, no monkeys have died due to Neuralink's implants. They were terminally ill and did not die as a result of the implants. That's what he's stated. But, you know, they were just comatose. They had taken care to select subjects that were already close to death. But people seem pretty suspicious about this claim. The Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine has called on the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission to investigate Musk's statements, claiming that they are uh, misleading. And, uh, you know, Elon Musk likes to say things on Twitter that influences stock price. And so the SEC hates that. And so they keep asking him not to do that. But I think he just likes to rouse rabble. I think so. He's just a rabble provocateur. I think that's his thing. And, you know. Multiple federal investigations have already been launched concerning Neuralink's uh, animal testing practices and safety protocols. Uh, but, you know, wow. they do have FDA approval for human trials aiming to enable people with paralysis to control computer interfaces with their brains. So here's my question that I wanted to maybe toss around a little or maybe it's a dumb question. What place do tech bros have in advancing such technologies that could alleviate human suffering? And this sort of ties in with our previous conversation a little bit. You know, and how can we make sure that, you know, People like Elon have an ethical framework to to use with with their with their financial motives. I don't know about the second part, but I think it does have a place eventually in the future. I don't know if our technology is necessarily there quite yet, but I do know people use or they're developing like retinal implants that mm-hmm. can help people see. It stimulates the retina and the optic nerve. And- but who's developing those implants? My impression is. That a lot of those developments, you know, yes, you know, you highlighted insulin as a sort of business opportunity that somebody took advantage of and did a good thing with. But, you know, when you're a lot of times, like from my perspective, a lot of times these advances come from universities that studied them first. And then the people involved in those studies commercialized them. So they started out with an, with an emphasis on ethics, at least lately wasn't always the case in medicine but i would venture to say that the basis the foundation of any technology that would be used by an organization like Neuralink is not made whole cloth in the company they are standing on the shoulders of their industries their academic industry right a fine example would be these vaccines came out recently right yeah. these mrna vaccines within the last few years that is a a novel approach to vaccines that technology is not right and it is not something that pfizer came up with or moderna or anybody else that's tried to use mrna to deliver a vaccine mrna well one mrna is inside of every living being so you know that's already there right but second using mrna to deliver genetic information to other cells is something we've been doing for 15 plus years before this right a company just use that technology that use that shared information that we get from academia and applied it in a very specific way that for them was commercially successful. And then we can go back to arguing whether or not capitalism worked well for us during the pandemic. But I think the same thing with Neuralink. I think that there are definitely people that are pushing the envelope and the company to, to reach a, an economic goal, but it's not like they, they aren't using the same, knowledge that that has been gained in academia that's been studied for probably decades at this point that has built up to this and also i these types of projects in order to be to get the approval to do these types of projects a lot of the times especially human trials ethicists are involved 
Like this isn't something that you can just do to people, right? The, the government straight up doesn't allow you to do this unless there are ethical considerations. Yeah, and that's a position that, you know, the articles that I've read kind of didn't cover as much. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That there must be some oversight. Uh, You'd involved. hope so. I mean, you've got to get an IRB yeah, to do human trials, and IRB institutional review boards are and awfully animal picky. trials too. Yeah, like this is true. Yeah. Written into federal law, this isn't like Elon Musk is running around as an individual poking monkeys. Like he has an entire academic and scientific team that has got, had to go through some pretty rigorous but it, it, so, regulation so, to to get to this point, right? So, isn't it possible though that he's just in his lab with a bunch of monkeys, or not him, but you know? His tech bro and his scientists are in a lab with a bunch of monkeys poking around at them and, you know, sort of outside the IRB process. Right. I do think that's very possible. Because IRB is through institutions, right? Like That's like right, institutional it's a private, review board. Yeah, if it's a private... I mean, if they're, getting to, if they're getting to human trials, yes, there is going to be some. You know, if the right. FDA has approved it, sure. they've at least looked at this in, in with an ethical yeah. uh, framework. But everybody yeah, that yeah. works in medical technology, whether it's a pharmaceutical company or a tech company like this, all of them require, anytime they're doing these types of studies, they require approval from the, a national agency, right? So Approval for medical technology and medical devices and equipment is pretty shaky, though. No, it's fair. The process of getting things approved is there's many roundabout ways and there's many loopholes. Because you can say, for instance, that my device is very much like other devices that already exist. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And And you get a fast track. And so you get a fast Mm -hmm. track and, you know, so you may be doing something very novel with an interface that superficially looks like a retinal implant that, you know, you, you mentioned before that, you know, does a thing safely, but... You may be doing. You may also be doing something that's different enough that yeah, it's not a good idea. Yeah. yeah, there was a problem with knee implants, and I think that these implants are still on the market, knees and hips, and they're these cobalt implants, and they're in the medical device company or in the medical device industry. So they got a fast track because you know biomechanically these implants do the same thing as the previous whatever material implants, and they're giving people like cobalt poisoning. Sure. Mm. Yeah, there was another, there's another case with, what's the word for when you don't want to get pregnant? Prophylactic, no. Birth control? Birth control. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Sounds like, like, basically birth, birth control. control. So we're looking birth for con- when you don't want to get pregnant. <laughs> Problems with birth control implants where they, uh, you know, they were, of course, approved for human use, but it turns out that they migrated around the body. And yes. They, had all kinds they were of like yes. the metal ones. Yeah. Yeah. Prophylactic. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you've got the right It is prophylaxis. It is yeah. You've got the right spirit. Yeah. I prefer to use fancy words that I don't I say. Know when I, when know. I don't know Ooh, them. Let me take my birth prophylaxis today. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it is. is it, yeah, I guess my only concern with this whole thing is what we were talking about with like the concept of growth, especially with companies. And for him, I mean, obviously he is an incredibly t- intelligent person, right? And he's shown that he's so good at doing things right he can build things he's made all sorts of rocket ships like things that we would have never thought were even possible even 10 years ago 20 years ago i don't know but now i wonder if he's growing for the sake of growth and not for (sighs) the altruist you know so his one of his big things with with spacex is you know moving people off the planet so that you know basically as a bulwark against some catastrophic you know 
disaster that happens to humanity. If we're on another planet, we don't have to worry. If the asteroid hits the Earth, you know, the species will continue. And that was what his stated, one of his stated goals. Yeah. Right. But do we trust Elon Musk? Do we want to put our, like, I do. faith in humanity and <laughs> Eric, take us take us to Mars, take us Elon. To, Mars. to be yeah. fair, he's not the only one going to Mars. Right? No, like no, China's no. going to Mars. The U.S. is going to Mars. There are other companies going to Mars. He is just the one. Maybe that, he just made it popular. Yeah. Well, one. Yeah. He made Mars cool. Yeah. That's the same thing with Tesla. Like, he specifically specifically said like like his goal with tesla and it should be pointed out that elon isn't tesla elon isn't spacex there are thousands of people that work for these organizations that make it happen elon cannot personally build a rocket he was just the one the first person dumb enough to say what if we built our own yeah you know and it worked out and now we save millions and upon millions in tax dollars every year because he did it so i'm happy but he took an idea and he said, I don't care that this is going to be the successful idea. I just care that it gets people talking about this idea and pushing it forward. He fully expected Tesla to fail, but he's like, well, if electric cars go forward, then we've won. As a civilization, we have won, even if my company fails. And you can take that statement at face value or not. It doesn't really matter. But like that has been the case, right? We have pushed forward and now we have more electric cars. The same thing with um, space where commercial space flight, even if SpaceX failed, is now popular many other companies are doing it other india just landed on the moon yeah i'm not 100 percent sure that would have happened if it weren't for things like spacex yeah yeah you know like just the cultural conversation around it and i think that's a beautiful thing for india to be able to say we made it to the moon you know but is elon musk or his company saying hey i am doing this for the cultural conversation like i don't think that's his goal by any means like i would think that, well, that his was goal just, just, i mean in, in a few of his company's cases that was the stated goal whether it was yeah. the real goal or not i think nobody can i, I don't think that i'm so much know. more skeptical of elon musk yeah, than all of you he really gives me super villain vibes like, yes yeah, really bad i'm really? totally fine with saying that he's a super villain if that's what makes people happy but i don't think that finances are his goal and the reason that i think that is because he doesn't own a house like he literally sleeps on the factory floor so he's not really worried about his life of luxury i think he is concerned about his legacy which is a different conversation. He wants to be important in the human story. Well, right, which is also concerning. Not, yeah, I'm not saying yeah. that's like in like inherently concerning. I'm just saying that's that is his goal. And the if we know that notoriety, yeah, like that, what's the what is that? See, but that, you know? I, right. I, I, oh, I mean, know if his goal is notoriety. No, I mean, if you take what he says at face value, then his goal is advancing the knowledge and the science of the human race. Yeah, and technology. Yeah. And I mean, so far, that's what he's done. Yeah, he just, he happens to have enough influence that he can take his personal fears and address them. One of his personal fears is what happens if something happens to the Earth and we're only on Earth. So being a two-planet species is better than being a one-planet species. He has the resources to handle that. What happens is if AI takes over, that would be bad. I have the resources to create Neuralink where maybe that won't be as big a problem. And, And let's face it, we're all kind of... And on some level doing something for our legacy, you know, like it may not, you know, we, we may not acknowledge it. You know, even I sometimes think doing this podcast, you know, the cool thing about it that I didn't really think about in the beginning, but now sometimes I think about is my voice is out there. Yeah. Forever. It's true. Immortalized. So in that way, I have achieved a, a certain immortality. And, and now kind I have. Of, pardon me. And now you have, yeah. Eric. And it's a part of me kind of likes that a little bit. Yeah. I, I guess okay. my biggest concern... So me and Elon Musk are exactly the same. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're basically... Well, I don't know if I would similar. claim that. <laughs> I guess my problem I'm with gonna the I'm going to change the name of this podcast to X. Oh, don't <laughs> even think about that. My I, I support with, it, Dave. Uh, any conversation around Elon Musk is that 
or both sides of it. Some people want a villain, some people want a hero, and yeah. I just very few people fought, fit into either one of those categories. He is just a dude it's complicated. who's trying to do something and he yeah. happens to have enough resources that he's making some headway in the things that he's trying to do. Yeah. Whether or not enough, they yeah. should be things that we're doing is, is a conversation, but like he is not bad because he's doing the things that he wants to do and he's yeah. not good because he's doing the things that he wants to do. He's and just let's face it, if I, like I didn't take. if if I didn't work for uh the University of Iowa, if I if I was in charge of this thing uh, this podcast that I have, I would probably be making outrageous claims too, just to get attention. Right. I mean, you know, but you know, I have to be careful that I, yeah, that I, I have a job at the end of the week. Sure. <laughs> I think the thing that makes me deeply uncomfortable about him is the fact that he has so many resources. And right. so he has so much say in what actually happens to people or monkeys or, or whatever. And yeah. while I think it's totally fine that people go around and do the things that they want. Most people don't have the resources that he has, so they don't have as much say in what happens in the world. And so right now it's Elon's world, more or less. And the truth is, like, I could definitely give supervillain vibes if... Like I had as many resources as Elon Musk and Elon Musk had as many resources as me. Well, that's, that's capitalism. I mean, that's what we were talking about before. He has enough resources because he's earned those resources for himself. Like all he's done he is earned, read books I mean, in his room for his entire life. I mean, teach I, himself engineering and I mathematics. Guess I guess I'm not really strong with the concept of earning, generally speaking, but I mean, he's put in some effort and it's gone well for him. And now... It, for better or worse, this is the world that we live in. He has those resources. Well, here's the thing: is that, is yeah, that we're hyper focused on Elon Musk right now, but I mean, there's millions of people that have as many resources right. in him and can well, be. Well, not yeah. millions, but definitely not millions. There's, there's <laughs> yeah. a lot of people that have. Yeah, I mean, like million, well, like five years ago, we were we were dumping on Bezos because he happened to, because we want a villain, right? We yeah. want to centralize but, the problems. We're not going to say Bezos is a villain. Like that. That seems saying, like a safe take, right? I'm, <laughs> I'm not saying whether or not he is a villain, but we want the guy, right? Because and our Do brains we? I don't are... want the guy. No, you, we want it. No, we want to be able to point like, to say, like, this is yeah. your yeah. fault. Yeah. L- let okay, me try this. You. Let me try this in a different way. We are a storytelling species. It is what we have always done since the beginning of that, humanity. Yeah. And okay. we like protagonists and we like antagonists because we like simplicity in our stories. Humanity has never been a story of protagonists and antagonists. It has always been a story of community, of groups coming together. But it's a lot harder to tell a story to empathize with 20 people or 1,000 people or 337 million people. Is that currently the population of the United States? It's a lot easier to get emotionally invested in the success or the failure of one person. And so the villain was, in the 90s, it was Bill Gates, right? And and for some people, it still is Bill Gates. The villain is the president if he happens to be of the opposite party. The villain is the richest person on the planet or the worst person on the planet or whoever it is, but we like the villain. Mm-hmm. And it's never that simple. There is never one hero or one villain. It's always a community, but we always pick them out. And as soon as Elon falls from his sphere of influence as soon as he's not no longer the person that has this much influence and somebody else is well up on that guy and that's yeah. that's the way of it i think it makes much more sense and is a lot more useful to say like if he has these influences let's just try to influence him right like let's try to you ride that wave a little yeah bit. like be be a part of a community that is trying to do some good instead of just saying that somebody else is, is the protagonist of this story that's yeah. not reasonable i don't want somebody else being the protagonist it kind of gives me like middle school vibes where we're saying, hey, is he a robber baron or a captain of industry? Right. And we will probably have this discussion for the rest of eternity. Yeah. yeah. Oh.
Shortcoats, if you're enjoying our conversation today, I'd be grateful if you'd let people know by posting a story on Instagram or Facebook or tweeting about us. And don't forget to tag us in your post. Thank you. This past September 14th, the 2023 Ig Nobel Prizes were awarded for achievements that make people laugh and then make them think, as they say on their website. Let's celebrate this with a pop quiz. Oh, goodness. Oh, I love a little quiz. A little quiz. We are truly in a technological age, as we've been discussing. The Public Health Prize was awarded to Stanford University School of Medicine and Seoul Songdo Hospital researchers who have created a device to monitor your health that analyzes the results of this activity that most people do often and every day. Is it A, eat, B, shower, C, Sorry, I ran. I forgot which letter I was on. <laughs> C, blink, or A, or or <laughs> D, elimination. D. Yeah, I hope it's elimination. I'm, I'm going, going with C because everyone's going D. Oh, I just an oh, iconoclast. Just, I'm going blink. Okay, Elon. So, <laughs> uh, but the majority says uh, elimination. I'm not. I don't oh, even know yeah. like what the likelihood of it being D. I just really want it to be D. Yeah. It just feels like the kind of thing that would get an Ig Nobel Prize, you know? Okay. Like, hey, how many times a day do you poop? Like, you know. What's the firmness? It? What's the color of it? Right, I know. And like, honestly, that does tell us a lot about our health. So, yeah. Well, you're correct. Elimination. The invention is a toilet mountable device that allows for longitudinal analysis of excreta <laughs> using pressure and motion sensors colorimetric assay of urine, flow rate and volume analysis, and stool classification with the Bristol Stool Form Scale. Whoa. I think think this is phenomenal. (laughs) They say its performance is comparable to trained medical uh, personnel, and they've really thought of everything. For instance, you know, if you're worried about security, each user is identified both by fingerprint and the distinctive features of their anoderm. <laughs> Great. So basically, they're taking a picture of your butthole. Yeah. Everybody has a unique a, star. Yeah, a <laughs> That's hilarious. Is the seat heated and do you get a bidet? It better be. If they're, if it's, yeah. I've, I've never had great experiences with you? bidets, but I mean, I haven't either. But I feel like it should be an option if they're checking out your anoderm. I mean, in, in case somebody right. thinks this is silly, just a fun fact for for all those kids out there that'll never meet me so I can share this with you. I once sent a picture of my Ain't elimination um, oh. to, oh. <laughs> I thought something to my sister who then yelled at me to go to a hospital and she was correct. And I was <laughs> hospitalized was for a, something that she could tell from my elimination. And wow. so that's all I'm going to say about that. Is she that. a doctor? Wow. She's not, not going to share Some things throw out red flags for a lot of people. Oh. And, uh, yeah, red. Yeah. It was not red, actually. Oh. Fun fact. Uh, yeah. Okay, well, we, we did we, we learn we, about you it. You seem yes, reluctant to share. And when somebody and, and brought I'm, it up, I was like, I I'm know exactly. Yeah. A colic stool. A colic. Oh, yeah. It's when your poop is white. Whoa. Yeah. Is that like biliary problems? Yeah, it's liver issues. Ooh. Uh, liver or gallbladder, and from in my case, it was liver. Gotcha. And uh, yeah, just fun, fun little fact That's for the class. Kind so, of looking at a, a your elimination could save your life. Yeah. Go toilet bro- bros. All right. That's actually extremely interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't know that could happen. A multinational research crew received the Medicine Prize this year. Uh, Researchers from the U.S., Canada, Macedonia, Iran, and Vietnam used a cadaveric population in a study to find out if each person has an equal number of what per where. Is it A, wrinkles per hand? Is it B, mites per eyelash? Is it uh, C, hairs per nostril or is it d grams per cubic centimeter 
Well, I think we're all comfortable saying that we have varying densities in our bodies. I'm going with nose. Nose hairs. Yeah, that's what I... Wait, what were they checking again? Like They just used a cadaveric population to find out if each person has an equal number of what per where. Yeah, I think nose hairs... I like the mites per eyelid, though, too. I really did, but then they said cadaveric, and I just don't know if we're going to have as many mites on cadavers. Right. I I don't know. That's fair. Yeah. I'm going to go with nose hairs. I'm going nose hairs, too. Yeah. Yeah. This sure. is great. You guys are really displaying the the process of elimination that you go through when you're doing an exam. I love this. This, this yeah. is how you pass the MCAT class. Yes. Yeah. Hairs per nostril. Uh, patients with alopecia areata often lose their vibrissae, which I didn't know was a thing. That's is that a it's basically whiskers, hair? but oh. they use it in uh, nose, for nose hairs as well. Mm-hmm. Oh. Or their nose hairs, which filter particles larger than three micrometers from passing through the nasal cavity. And... If they lose them, they may be at risk for airborne particle inhalation, and that's kind of bad news. Allergies, things like that. The researchers say that surprising, no one has ever before published anything on the anatom- on the anatomical distribution of nose hairs. So, what were their findings? I didn't care. <laughs> Fair. Uh, Just, can, you, uh, can you find out for next time, please? All right, wait, wait, wait. I'll, I'll I'll look it up while you're looking yeah. it up. Pop, pop quiz for the class. Where would you find that people have longer nose hairs? And what type of environment do people tend to have longer nose hairs and thicker? In Dave Etler's nose. Cold. Cold makes sense. It's a reasonable answer. Yeah. Dusty Dusty makes sense. Yeah. That would be like maybe the desert. Cities. Yeah. There's a lot of pollutants. Oh, I thought you were talking like genetic, like. That makes perfect sense that my question was poorly worded on purpose. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I should not be writing. So you can grow like. In a city, huh? You adapt. Yeah. This is an adaptation. This isn't like a genetic change this is so much as a oh my gosh just have you looked at like your wife's interesting i have not looked up my wife's nose you she should. doesn't care for it when i try nose so. hairs are surprisingly gross <laughs> yeah people don't care for them <laughs> I, mean, I just wish that like they would stay in my nose the older yeah. i get the more they start trying to like well that's why they make the injury into to, my mustache you're, you're close to hair or ear age too oh can we talk about something <laughs> for a second yeah so is it your this, ear hair oh kind of yeah so this little thing oh sorry this side too this little thing right here that like sometimes people get pierced. The tragus. It's yeah. called the tragus. Yes. It means goat in Latin because when people get old, particularly men, they grow little hairs out of the outside Aww. that looks like a billy goat's You're... chin. And let me tell you, <laughs> that's, that's adorable. Can verify. Can verify. <laughs> Do you ever look at it and think like, Bleh. Every once in a while, I'll like reach up and like, you know, sort of itch my ear and then I'll and, and then I'll realize that there is like just long one. hair the length just of his entire arm just sticking so out of his ear we have that to look for I can't find the answer yeah. to this to the question of the yeah. I've noticed that I am getting I run. thicker hair oh, yeah. around my ears yeah, I gotta, around your ears are- they're not colored yet which is very nice and I just shave them off because it's really embarrassing for me yeah oh don't let it be embarrassing you are who you celebrate. are yeah. celebrate yeah celebrate your hair celebrate your, your hairs dude alright I got one more Japanese researchers proposed a way of augmenting gustation, the act of tasting. Mm-hmm. To do this, they have proposed altering chopsticks and drinking straws using what? Is it A, mouse hairs, C, vibratory, vibratory motors, B, tiny, sharp spikes, or A, electricity? Mm, I think the vibrations. Okay. I don't know why. We're we'll going electricity. Yeah, electricity. Seems- <laughs> electricity. Okay, what is it? I don't know. What, right what did you guys guess? Electricity. electricity. It just seems like fun. I'm the only one that's going with vibrations. Okay. Am I wrong? Okay. You are wrong. It is electricity. The article from the Proceedings of the Second Augmented Human International Conference 
says that the researchers experimented with two electrified drinking straws so that subjects could taste beverages in the presence of electricity. The experiments were very preliminary, and the researchers only say that the electric drinking straws made it possible to alter taste at different voltages. Now, you know me. I can't just let this. I have to. There have to be findings. Uh, so if you would reach into that box next to you and uh, oh, take out this experimental apparatus, I know you'll love this, Fallon. I'm highly concerned. If you would bring, if you would bring like that out. For, yeah, we've got <laughs> some a little electrical outlet with some straws sticking out of it. This can't uh, be who the, wants to volunteer? <laughs> this can't be the way cancer. to go about this, dude. Look at this. This is science right here. You I'm not worried about cancer. Science. I'm worried about shocking my tongue. <laughs> this is their plastic. They're, they're definitely going to smoke and get all messed up he's smelling it do i put it in my mouth is it's that not plugged in it's not plugged in we could plug it in if you want is that what you want me to do yeah how did they do mouth? that no i think we do. what kind of apparatus did they use yeah, I really thought they it doesn't say it, like it doesn't say OSHA anything standards. Yes. there's nothing in this they, article that they don't says want anything. any patent concerns later they're also they're why? Not they don't, they don't talk about voltages they don't talk about you know yeah this is a wild they don't talk about anything and why why are you doing but i'm a scientist why is a good question you are a really creative person though i like that it's just trying to Make me shock myself. Well, that's our show, Jeff, Eric, Fallon, Katie. Thanks for being on the show with me today. Thank you, guys. You yeah, to be here. And what kind of shock would it be if I didn't thank you, Shortcoats, for making us a part of your week? If you're new here and you like what you heard today, follow the show wherever fine podcasts are available, like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and YouTube. This episode was produced by yours truly. The show is made possible by a generous donation by Carver College of Medicine Student Government and ongoing support from the Writing and Humanities program. Our music is by Dr. Vox and Catmosphere. I'm Dave Etler saying don't let the bastards get you down. Talk to you in one week. Hi, short coats. Look, life in medical education, life in America, life in the world is often difficult. And I often wish I could help. All I have is this podcast, but... In my wildest dreams, you have the support you need to lead a life of your choosing. You deserve to be happy, healthy, and successful in whatever ways you define those words. So if you need support because you've experienced racism, discrimination, harassment, mental health crises, I want you to be able to get the help that you need. And so I'm going to put some links in the show notes to some resources that you can use. But the bottom line is that for what it's worth... I see you. I know you're out there. I wish I could do more. Maybe I can in ways that I don't understand yet or know about. But I see you, and I'm glad you're here, and other people are too. This Short Code Podcast is a proud member of the MedEd Media Network. Inspiration, information, and guidance on your journey to medical school and beyond 